It was a century ago when what was known as the Great War ended. Strangely, in an armistice at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918. For the Allies, a costly and contentious victory that for many felt more like a defeat. For people around the world, an opportunity lost that pushed liberation from imperial control back a few more decades. The Cal State Fullerton Department of History is hosting a two-day symposium, The War to End All Wars, a centennial commemoration of World War I, November 13 and 14, with faculty and student presentations, film screening, and more. It's free, and you can find out more at the department website and social media accounts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On this episode of Outspoken, we'll remember World War I. We'll hear from Jonathan Markley, my colleague in the Department of History, who's been researching his family's involvement in World War I. And we will hear voices from the archive, remembering the Great War era. Ernest Hemingway drove an ambulance for the Red Cross in Italy before the U.S. joined the war. In A Farewell to Arms, his novel based on that experience, he captured the sense of disillusion and disorientation the war had caused. I was always embarrassed by the word sacred, glorious, and sacrifice and the expression in vain, his narrator, Frederick Henry, confides. We had heard them, sometimes standing in the rain, almost out of earshot, so that only the shouted words came through, and I had seen nothing sacred, and the things that were glorious had no glory, and the sacrifices were like the stockyards at Chicago if nothing was done with the meat except to bury it. There were many words that you could not stand to hear, and finally only the names of places had dignity. Certain numbers were the same way, and certain dates, and these with the names of the places were all you could say and have them mean anything. Abstract words such as glory, honor, courage, and hallow were obscene beside the concrete names of villages, the numbers of roads, the names of rivers, the numbers of regiments, and the dates. That was Hemingway ten years after. By then, some of the names had become very well known indeed, associated as they were with horrific carnage. The seeming end point of progress now collapsed into words like Verdun, Gallipoli, Caporetto, the Somme. The horrors of the Great War, the shocking death toll, the seeming senselessness of it all, effectively ended a phase of history. It ended in the mud, in a stalemate that toppled empires and created a modern world of social, political, and artistic uncertainty in just a few short years. The assumptions of civilization and progress that European culture had represented had not been able to prevent death on a horrific scale, a waste of lives, of landscape, a scarring of the very psyche of a generation who now saw their own educations as having been founded on a tissue of lies. The true initiation for this new world had been the trenches of the First World War. And it was a world conflict. Cal State Fullerton history professor Jonathan Markley is from New Zealand. He's researched his family's involvement in the war over the past few years, detective work that has brought him closer to his own roots and to an understanding of how people lived and died during the Great War. I actually have a diary that was written by my grandfather's sister who was living in London. And, uh, and she actually went on holiday to Belgium 
and she got there on July the 29th, 1914. And, um, and it's fascinating just some of the sense of overconfidence and patriotism that's coming out. My favorite entry, though, is Friday, July the 31st. Early morning, we watched the soldiers going away by train to guard the Belgian frontiers. Rumors of war between Germany and Russia and Germany and France reached us, but nothing was confirmed. We were afraid I should have to come home at once, but Monsieur van der Pitt telegraphed through to Paris to ask if it would be safe for me to stay, and they answered that there was no necessity whatever to leave Belgium. Then she mentions many strong motors and horses were taken for the Belgian army. So there's a little note about mobilization. Also kind of fascinating how the language has changed. They don't talk about cars or automobiles. They call them motors. And you can see that they're basically the Belgian army's calling up civilian vehicles. And, uh, and some, of the other, some of the other stuff, let me just jump through. This is when she's, the war's broken out and they're ready to go. And, um, and it's base, there's a lot of rah-rah, we're winning, the Germans are being driven back, the Germans are surprised by the resistance. And then there's a comment... Oh, here we go. Just on her way back, this is now August the 14th, and some other sort of old-fashioned values here. There's an English gentleman offered to see me safely through, and I accepted his kind offer. We saw a torpedo boat come into Calais Harbour. A little after 11 p.m., we left for Boulogne. On the way, we compared past wars with the present one, discussed Germany's resources and tactics compared with ours, and criticized the Kaiser and the Crown Prince. If only they could have heard it. So... You, you really do get that sense of confidence, of patriotism, of, you know, those stupid Germans. It's obviously the mood's going to shift a, a bit when the reality of the war comes in. The British Empire was still in full flower when New Zealanders responded to the Allies' call to arms. Um, as soon as World War I broke out, the Commonwealth, which at the time very much saw itself as part of the empire, they were returning to fight for the mother country. They signed up in huge numbers. They could basically have their pick of volunteers because there were so many coming forward. They were very strict in taking them. My grandfather was actually in that first draft. But over the course of that war, starting from 1914 all the way through to 1918, New Zealand sent over 100,000 men and women to war. And the country only had a population of 1.1 million at the time. So you can imagine what kind of scar that left across the landscape. Everywhere you go in New Zealand, every little town, sometimes places that aren't even towns anymore, they're sort of almost abandoned townships in the countryside, you'll find a war memorial. And you're standing around and all you see is a few farmhouses and there will be a list of 10 or 12 names of men who didn't come back from World War I. It's, it's a scar that is, I think it's still felt even today in New Zealand. And Jonathan's grandfather was among the New Zealand volunteers. He lied to get in. Um, it's one of the family stories that his eyesight was no good. And so he knew he'd failed the medical. So he got there early before the doctor turned up. He went in and he memorized the eyesight chart. And it was, that was a family story I've had for years. When I finally got my grandfather's file, I could pull out his attestation documents that had all the medical checkups. And it shows him with perfect eyesight. And, um, and then, so that at least partially confirmed the story because we know he never had good eyesight. And this wasn't the stage where the recruitment officers were taking any old thing. They were rejecting large numbers of men in this first batch. 
Those family stories stuck with Jonathan Markley. Long after he'd become an expert in the history of ancient Rome, he began an unexpected research project much closer to home. One of my uncles wrote a sort of a family memoir of his own family, and he included a chapter at the beginning about granddads and the stories that he remembered. But the place where my research actually began came by a astounding coincidental chance. And this was about, oh, maybe six or seven years ago now. My mother got a phone call from one of her old school friends saying, have you seen the latest issue of The Listener? The Listener's a New Zealand magazine. It's the one, like, I think they call it Radio Television Times or something, where, you know, people used to buy these magazines to see when are the TV shows and the radio shows, those kind of things. And uh, have you seen the latest issue? Mum said, no, we don't get The Listener. Nobody in my family got that magazine. And she said, I think your father's in it. And so, of course, she went out and bought it. And there were these photos from a hospital in England in 1918. And it was four photos of my grandfather showing before surgery and after surgery. And we had no idea these photos and these records even existed. All I knew was that granddad, well, my, I should say first, my granddad died when I was 16, so I did know him. And all I knew was he had this really, really big fold on his cheek. I didn't really even know what it was. I don't think I even knew it was a World War I wound. And, uh, and then, of course, the next question is, what are these photos of my grandfather doing in this magazine? And it was a book review of a book I actually brought along here today. It was called The Face of War, New Zealand's Great War Photography. And uh, Sandy Callister had done her PhD on New Zealand's World War I photography. And she had quite a lot of photo albums and things she'd acquired. And chapter five of her book, was New Zealand's World War I medical photography. And for whatever reason, she chose to open her chapter five with these four photos of my grandfather. And because our War Memorial Day, which is April 25th, I'll probably have to explain why that is. That's a big deal still today in Australia and New Zealand. Um, they were writing a book review. So there was a World War I book. So they were writing a book review. And of all of the photos they could have chosen out of this book to lead their book review, they chose the photos of my grandfather. If this hadn't happened, we would never have learned, well, that those records even existed. We contacted the archive, and the archivist sent us his x-ray of his broken jaw, the medical notes. I found there was a watercolor painting of him that came in just after he was wounded, and a bunch of other things. And since, since that time, um, the, the archivist who sent me these other pieces of information has actually written a book. It's called Faces, Faces from the Front or Faces of the Front? I think it's Faces from the Front about this hospital. It's called Sidkip. It's in England. And, um, and because he was corresponding with us by then, we sent him a photo before he was wounded and a photo when he was an old man in his 80s. So unusually for his book, he could show the full progression because he had the medical photos. So then he could have a photo before the wound, a photo of the wound, a photo after the surgery, and what he looked like many decades later. Where was he when he was injured? Um, he was in France. They were attacking a village called Les Dames. It was right near the end. It was October the 8th, 1918. He almost got through. 
And it was actually a really big day in World War I history. It was part of what they called the Hundred Days Offensive. It was the last big offensive to break the Germans. And this was the final day they broke the Hindenburg Line. This was the, the dreamed-of breakthrough where you got through all the trenches and suddenly you had open country in front of you. It was that day. As a result, lots of regimental histories talk a lot about that day. I've been able to reconstruct the battle in quite a lot of detail. Of course, my grandfather didn't get to see it because that was the day he was shot through the face and uh, was back at a casualty clearing station. So, yeah, it was. he almost made it through, but not quite. Markley was used to working with ancient texts to interpret the deep past. Now he began looking through military records from the 20th century. Uh, because World War I is such a big deal in New Zealand history, the New Zealand government really did a very, very good thing. And for the commemoration, they scanned every single service file of every single New Zealander who served in World War I and made them freely available through the New Zealand government archives website. So now you can pull my grandfather's file. If you have the name or the service name of any New Zealand man or woman who served in the war, you can immediately pull their file. It's been enormously useful for my research. I find the name of somebody associated with Grandad, I just go straight to the archives, pull up the file, and compare them and see what I can learn. You know, there's so many things I just didn't even know he had done or been. I, didn't, I knew about his face wound because it was very visible. I didn't realize he had also been shot on the shoulder in 1916, and he'd, he'd actually spent a year in England recovering from that. Um, and so this was October he got shot, and he was having surgery through November, early December. And I didn't realize that he got married on the 1st of January 1919 to my grandmother in London. So he must have been a shocking sight. My grandfather has this fascinating backstory. So his father immigrated to New Zealand and married a colonial girl in New Zealand and had three children. She then died 11 months after my grandfather was born. My great-grandfather just decided to give up on this colonial attempt and took the children back to London. So my grandfather then grew up in London and went to the same church as my grandmother, which was a London Scots church. They were, my ancestry goes back to Scotland, they both went to this Scottish church in London. And then at age 18, this was 1912, and I've never fully understood why this was, because he was less than two when he left New Zealand, so he would have had no memory of it. On his own at age 18, he got on a transport ship and went back to New Zealand on his own. That was 1912. So then, two years later, World War I rocks up. He immediately signs up to war and goes back with the New Zealand forces. And when he's convalescing, he goes and looks up my grandmother. The story is that he had said to her, I'll come back for you one day. So, And there's another family story where one of my cousins told me that apparently everybody's that the family always, always kind of knew that those two were destined for each other. There was no doubt that if he survived the war, they were going to get married. Jonathan Markley's wounded grandfather was not through with the war, not by any means. The, um, the hospital he was sent, it was called Hornchurch. It was a hospital just for New Zealand forces in England, and it was a convalescent hospital. Any New Zealand soldiers who were wounded went there to recuperate, and then they would have an assessment. If you're too wounded to recover, you're put in a boat and you're sent back to New Zealand. 
if you can be rehabilitated, you're rehabilitated. That's how he ended up in a combat unit, because they needed men for to man the heavy machine guns. And I've read about this in a number of other occasions as well, where the recruiters from the machine gun unit came around the convalescent hospital looking for men who were about ready to go back and, okay, you're a, you're a machine gunner now. So, yeah, so then he spends the last year of the war in a heavy machine gun unit. I asked Jonathan what he hasn't learned that he wishes he could know. What would he ask of his grandfather if he could? I want to know how he got shot in the shoulder. What the circumstances were. Because while I've been able to reconstruct in great detail what happened to his face in 1918, the military file is really frustrating. It will tell you what casualty clearing station he was sent to. It'll tell you what kind of wound he suffered. It'll tell you what day it was. But it has nothing about the action. And as near as I can tell from his file, he's not in a combat unit at the time. I think he's actually in the New Zealand field bakery, the unit that's baking the bread and all of these kind of things. So how does he end up getting hit in the shoulder? Was it just some random bad luck from an artillery shell? I have a working theory, but I'd love... But I can't confirm it, no matter how hard I've, I've been digging. There was a disaster. There was a New Zealand company that was doing a trench raid that night, and somehow the Germans got wind they were coming, and they were just obliterated. All the officers were immediately killed. There was nobody to order them to cancel the operation. And then after the German shelling was all done, I've had a number of records that say it was all hands on deck until dawn of people crawling out into no man's land and pulling every dead and wounded back. And I've kind of wondered if perhaps he was there delivering bread to the men at the front and, okay, you can get out there, help. This is... And I know other companies were sending men to help. And this is not confirming the theory, but at least makes it plausible. I actually found an interview... Not an interview, a, um, a diary description of one of the men who was out there pulling bodies back in. And he, he was describing it. It was really vivid. He said there was a German machine gun on a traverse. So as soon as you heard the, that machine gun open up, you had to go flat into the mud. And so the bullets would just pass over you. He said he forgot to flatten his feet. He had his toes in with his heel up. And a bullet immediately went through the back of his boot. And the guy beside him... You can just imagine when you go down and you're getting ready to go up, you put your hands on the ground with your elbows raised, and those raised elbows were too high, and he immediately got two bullets through his elbow, and he named this other fellow. And I was able to pull the other fellow's military file, and at least I can say that he was sent to the same casualty clearing station on the same day as my grandfather. So, call it possible. No, I wouldn't mm -hmm. even say plausible. Mm -hmm. So that's the, that's the first question I'd ask him. What happened about the shoulder wound? How did it happen? Where were you? I just can't crack that one. It's really frustrating. Mm -hmm. Jonathan's grandfather is not the only relative he's researching. Another story began to emerge. I was so involved with doing my grandfather's story in the New Zealanders, and I was looking on the UK National Archives website for anything about the New Zealanders. Didn't find anything, but I had this vague memory that my grandmother, the one who my grandfather married on in 1919, that she had a brother that was killed. I didn't really know much about him. All I literally knew was he was an officer and he died. And I had his name from some family papers. And on a whim, I typed his name into the UK National Archives. 
and up popped the record of a file. Now this is very unusual because the majority of English soldiers, British soldiers, their files don't survive because they were in a huge warehouse that was hit in World War II by the German bombers. So the fact that there was a file that even existed was already intriguing. Now the UK National Archives are not like the New Zealand ones where everything's scanned and everything's free. What I could tell from this was there was a file. This man had the right name. He was a second lieutenant, a junior officer, and he was in a London regiment, which matched up what I knew. So I thought it was likely to be him. And then the file has not been scanned. So you can pay £9 for a file search. So they go off, and they don't get it for you. For £9, they just come back and say, yes, it's there, we found it. And then they tell you how much it'll cost if you want to see it. And they said it's about 85 pages long, and if you would like us to scan it for you, it'll be £1 per page. So I sat on that for a couple of weeks, thinking £85 for a file... I don't even know what's in it. That's a lot of money for a, a random, whimsical thing. But in the end, without telling my wife, I just paid the money and <laughs> held my breath. I was kind of scared it was going to just be a battalion roll sheet. It might just be boring and, and nothing. But when it came back, it was a fascinating gold mine. There was so much stuff I didn't know. Um, I didn't know the operation had been killed. I didn't know his body had never been found. And so there was a lot of material in the file which was basically a cold case. There were contradictory witness statements. There was a private who was in hospital in England, and he said, oh, yes, he was my platoon officer. And um, I was with him on the 22nd, and he was killed by an artillery shell. I know it was him. His body was badly mangled, but I could see his face. I was on the spot. I rendered aid to the other men who were wounded by the same shell, so I can confirm he's dead. And on a big war memorial in France for men whose body was never recovered, he is recorded as dying on March 22nd. But then, and all of this I had to reconstruct from the military file, then my great-grandfather, sorry, I should go back, the man who died, his name is William. And so his father is my great-grandfather. William is my great-uncle. So... Um, my great-grandfather goes to the war office and says, I've received a postcard from Lieutenant Cruikshank from a German prisoner of war camp saying, I've spoken to Captain Brookling and Captain Brookling told me that William's dead. And then my grandfather goes to the war office and says, I, I well, I'll actually have to read the letter to give the, the details of, of what happens next. And this, I had no idea. I'd never even seen the handwriting of my great-grandfather. But, um, and here were several letters, handwritten letters by my great-grandfather to the war office that were inside this military file, part of the 85 pages. And so this one, Sir, um, re, my, my son, I'm enclosing a copy of a letter received from Captain Brooklyn's father. So he'd got the postcard. The war office had said, well, why don't you get Captain Brooklyn's father to contact his son directly? Because it'll be faster than if we do it by official channels. So there's all this fascinating detail, all the communication with men in German prisoner of war camps who are writing letters to their family, getting letters from their family, writing replies. It, it was a whole aspect of World War I I never even imagined existed. So this happens. He writes to um, 
writes to him, and he, okay, so I'm enclosing the copy of a letter received from Captain Brooklyn's father in response to inquiries made in order to correct the conclusion come to in consequence of the report made by Private Goodman, copy of which you kindly forwarded to me um, previously. The further details contained in the enclosed letter exactly coincide with the evidence I obtained from some of my son's fellow officers when they were in hospital. So you can tell that this man had been going to the hospital trying to find other men who were in the same battalion as his son, asking them, do you know what happened to William? Um, and then, the, and this led me to the conclusion, my son was alive on the 23rd of March until a short time before the enemy came through. So now we seem to have evidence saying he wasn't killed on the 22nd because the battalion was overrun on the 23rd. Um, as one of them said, he was sniping with him that morning, and another, Second Lieutenant Spence, was speaking to him a short time before on the telephone. In June last, I received a copy of Private Goodman's report from the British Red Cross, and I immediately interviewed Private Goodman in hospital, and in consequence of which, and what he told me, I was convinced that he was entirely mistaken, and upon viewing my son's photograph, he was satisfied that the officer he alluded to was not my son. I'm pleased to note that the other officers who took part in the action in which my son lost his life have been awarded the Military Cross. Apologies for troubling you with this lengthy explanation. Yours obediently, William Francis Sr. The father was also called William. So he, you can just imagine this poor family. They've got a report their son is missing. They don't know where he is. They're, they're hearing different details. And... Um, and then we have, in the same handwriting, so it's still my great-grandfather's handwriting, and he's written copy at the top, he has copied the letter he got from Captain Brooklyn's father. And it has, and so this is the letter that he'd received. Dear Sir, I have this day received a letter from my son, Captain Brooklyn, in answer to my letter regarding your son. So clearly he had asked him, he'd written a letter to his son in the German prisoner of war camp, now the son has written back. And I am sending his exact words. I am sorry to say that 2nd Lieutenant Francis was killed about three hours before I was captured. He was shot through the head. Francis did splendidly that day. He was a fine and gallant officer, and I liked him immensely. Give my deepest sympathy to his people. Yours truly, William Brooklyn. P.S. He said, Taylor and Knott were also killed, I expect, as they're not prisoners. So I guess they... They, in the confusion of the battle, they, they got together the fellow officers who were captured that day and then said, well, who's not here? It took them six months before they would make a ruling. And there's so much in the war office files, little bureaucratic, bureaucratic notes where they're going back and forth saying, could we not accept this evidence? And saying, no, that's not enough for us to absolutely confirm it. We need something more. Eventually, they actually get on official German Red Cross stationary, a report from Captain Brooklyn, this is through official channels, where he's obviously been interviewed in the camp, he's filled out a form, and he says, this is where, this is when, this is how, and he even says, it, one of the questions on the form is, where was the body buried, and he says, he was not buried by British forces at all, because we were overrun, and I have no way of knowing what, was, what happened, and many of the others um, who were killed that day are also missing. Their bodies were never found. Now, I've, I've realised I need 
to go to the archives. It's too expensive to do it long range at a pound a page because I've identified a number of other officers who were killed in the battalion on the same day. I realize I have to see their files as well because is this typical? Or is, are all of the families going through this? Or were the other ones a simple case of, okay, you must be dead, we'll just write them off? Is, is it because my great-grandfather was pushing and digging and making inquiries? And the other thing, and this I managed to get a friendly PhD student one time to go into the archives for me. I, I can't do it again. He doesn't live in London. He was going there for his own purposes. And I gave him a wish list, and he got them all for me of those officers, including Captain Brooklyn, who were captured that day, because I knew British officers, when they're finally freed, are required to be exonerated for surrendering. You don't surrender, you're supposed mm -hmm. to fight. So they were required to fill out a report explaining the circumstances of how they came to be captured. And so I had the names of six officers captured from the battalion on that day, and five of them had their reports describing it. So now I have five eyewitness reports from five different perspectives of what was happening that day. So I've got a pretty good picture. The battalion was holding a front on a canal. They were flanked on both sides. Their brigade was ordered to withdraw, but because of the heavy mist and other things, they didn't get the order. So as the units on left and right were withdrawing, they were left exposed. There was heavy mist until about 11.30, and at that point the mist rose, and then the Germans were already in close position on a railway embankment on their flank. They were in hastily prepared one-foot trenches, and Brooklyn says William was killed about three hours before they were captured. The Fusiliers finally ran out of ammunition and, and surrendered at 2.30 in the afternoon, and it was about 11.30 in the morning when the mist rose. So I'm reasonably satisfied that I now know the circumstances of his death. It was that point when the mist rose, there was a hail of trench mortars and machine gun fire on their positions, and then about three hours later, that would be 2.30 in the afternoon, the position was overrun and these various officers were captured. So it's actually been quite surprising how much detail you can reconstruct from what happened to one man and one unit and on one day of World War I. And Markley found an American connection to the story. I recently found out that a, an American whose name Andrew Capitz, I did remember, Andrew Capitz has written a book about the 313th American Machine Gun Battalion. Now, I bought this book as soon as I found out it existed and immediately located the author via Facebook and we've been exchanging messages back and forth. The reason why the 313th American Machine Gun Battalion is of great interest to me was in July and August of 1918, this fresh American unit was assigned to my grandfather's New Zealand Machine Gun Battalion to give them some experience of the front line. They didn't want to just give a Green Battalion a position on the trenches and leave them there. Who knows what will happen? So this American battalion was assigned to the New Zealanders, and the New Zealanders pulled one company out of the front, and they rotated one American company through, each giving them a few days in the front line. And I knew this had happened, but I didn't really know much about it. And then, of course, I found in about two or three chapters had a whole bunch of 
really interesting little stories about the New Zealanders. And they just had a reunion of, well, not a reunion exactly, a gathering of family members of the 313th Machine Gun Battalion in Pennsylvania. A lot of them came from Erie, Pennsylvania. And I knew from the New Zealand side, just the official thing said, oh, yes, we got on really well with the Americans. But I wasn't sure if this was just rah-rah for the official publication. But I got all of the same stuff from the American side. They were all saying, oh, I enjoyed my time with the New Zealanders far better than anyone else. I get the sense that the Americans found the British a bit stuffy and boring, but the colonials, the Canadians, the New Zealanders, the Australians, the Americans, well, I don't know, Americans, well, they're kind of colonials. Um, I get the impression that they got on a lot better together. And uh, I, I, had, I only learned this from this American book, that it looks like um, Colonel Blair, the colonel in charge of my grandfather's battalion, was a complete nut. It was a, a, a hilarious story. These American officers turn up, and um, and he describes this New Zealand colonel as having a having to sort of hop along and drag one leg because he had been wounded at Gallipoli, and he really shouldn't have been commanding men at the front. He should have been back in New Zealand. And when I pulled his file, I realized he was an old cavalry officer. He had fought in the South African War, the Boer War. And he'd been in a mounted unit at the beginning of World War I. And somehow he'd wound up commanding the machine gunners. And so he was much more comfortable on horseback. So he decided to give a tour of the front lines to these Americans on horseback. They must, there must have been some folds in the land. I mean, they, they weren't exposed to sniper fire, so they can't have been quite right at the front. And this American says, this crazy New Zealand colonel, would raise one finger and gallop away in a shower of mud... And he said, we were supposed to see the front line that day. All I saw that day was my horse's ears and showers of mud. And one of the New Zealand officers apparently muttered under his breath, we can't keep this up. We can't let this guy out. Um, and he was just, every, he said, every time we Americans tried to slow down, up would go that one finger and off he would vanish in a shower of mud. He rode his horse down into a trench and rode his horse along the step, the firing step. Um, and... Um, and the American concluded, saying, yes, if we ever have to defend that sector of ground, we really know that ground now. We had it in our eyes. We had it in our noses. We had it in our mouths. Yes, siree, we know that ground. So it just seems like made for television almost, this crazy, eccentric, limping former cavalry officer who, who just is, you know, the other New Zealand officer going, just keep them contained. Research can be frustrating. The documents don't exist or aren't available, memories fade, but Jonathan Markley has some advice for history detectives. The first piece of advice would just be keep pecking at it. It's astounding how much you find. And try tangents, because so many of these things that I found have come from complete tangents. So, for example, you might know where he was at that time. In the case, because this is the army, I know what unit he was in at the time. So then you start looking, can I find what that unit was doing at that time? Can I find out where they are? And maybe that will be enough. Maybe having found out where they were, you can't find anything about his unit, but you might find out about another unit who was in exactly the same sector. So the same thing might apply, for example, if you knew they were in a village 
you know, forget the army for now. They were in a village. Okay, I can't find anything else about them. What can I learn about that village? Oh, well, I know he was a miner. Oh, I knew there was a miner's strike that that year. So there must have been things going on. And there's a good chance you might be able to find some histories or even some recorded diaries of somebody who was involved in the miners' strike or something like that. So go off to the side. Try to find people who might have been in the same place at the same time. The Great War was so vast, its causes so mundane compared to the cost, and the end so inconclusive that making sense of the big picture has always been a challenge. Yet it is a war deeply lodged in the cultural memory because the human stories, the experiences of individual participants, have made some kind of meaning out of the madness. We think of memoirs such as those of Vera Britton and Robert Graves, the fiction of Hemingway, John Dos Passos, Eric Maria Remarque, the poetry of Wilfred Owen, the great films of the 1920s such as King Vidor's The Big Parade or William Wellman's Wings. Today we're finding new ways to remember the war. A really good example of this is the famous New Zealand director, Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings, all of those movies. Um, he was commissioned by the Imperial War Museum to basically just do something with all our archival footage. And I cannot wait to see this. It screened just this earlier this month, October the 16th, at the Imperial War Museum. It's had uh, movie screenings in England, but they're not yet willing to talk about overseas rights. And he, he didn't just colorize them using computer graphics because the frame rate on those old movies were so slow. Even computer-generated extra frames between the frames to smooth it all out. And I would just have finished watching an interview with him, with Peter Jackson. And again, he was saying exactly the same thing. He was concentrating on the soldiers' stories. He, he wasn't really making a World War I movie about the war. He was making a World War I movie about these people, and suddenly you could see them as natural people. They're in colour, they're moving smoothly, they're not these grainy, scratchy, jerky World War I movies. And there's one which, I wonder if he'll ever treat it, because in 1918 the New Zealand Prime Minister joined, uh, went, visited France and visited all the New Zealand boys at the front. And just a couple of weeks ago I found the, at the Imperial War Museum there's actually a 20-minute reel that you can watch online of the Prime Minister's visit. And about three minutes of that is his visit to the New Zealand Machine Gun Battalion. And there is a scene where the New Zealand Prime Minister is manning one of these heavy tripod machine guns. His, um, his assistant who's with him on the trip is acting as his loader. And behind them are crowded all the men of the battalion. And the camera pans over all of the men. I mean, they're standing eight deep and you can just see the tops of some of their hats and I've scanned and scanned it looking for anybody who even looks vaguely like my grandfather I can't find him but he's got to be there I mean he was in the battalion at that time everybody's going to be out to see the prime minister when he comes for the official visit so perhaps I somewhere at the top of one of those hats you know <laughs> something like that Jonathan Markley's family history quest is part of that effort to remember the great war Lawrence DeGraff's Center for Oral and Public History Archives also contains memories from the era. Here's archivist Natalie Navarre with more. Hello, my name is Natalie Navarre, and I'm the archivist for the Lawrence DeGraff Center for Oral and Public History. This part of Outspoken is called Out of the Archives. 
This section is where I highlight oral histories and other findings from our projects. Throughout this segment, we will be listening to clips of oral histories from our personal and family, Fullerton and Tustin oral history projects. These clips cover the experiences men and women had during World War I. The first clip you will listen to comes from an oral history with Nelson D. Roop. This interview was conducted in two parts by Margaret Linton on April 2nd and May 30th of 1973. Listen as he discusses volunteering for service and his first orders overseas. In those days, we, or at least in our office, we figured that it was a, a disgrace if you were, if you were to be drafted. They were talking about the draft wasn't a, a law yet, but they were talking about it. And they said if you were going to, if you were drafted, well, at least the people in the office and around my friends figured it's kind of a disgrace to be drafted. So we all volunteered. And there was a doctor in the David Whitney building, Dr. Barker, Barter, that uh, was organizing an ambulance company. And uh, of course the talk was that the war would be over in just a few months. Well, young bucks like me, you wanted to be sure to get over there. So they needed ambulance companies. So uh, <clears throat> quite a few fellas in my office joined this uh, uh, ambulance company, 337th Ambulance Company, which was later called Detroit's own. And we were supposed to go to, in three months, we were supposed to go to Allentown, Allentown Pennsylvania, and then right over to France. Well, it didn't work that way at all. By fall, uh, see the war broke out in the spring, and by early fall, we were all sent to Camp Custer. And we were there almost a year before we got sent over, overseas. And then we were sent to England, to Stony Castle. That now, there's no castle there, it's just the name of a location. Well, we were there three, three weeks, and then uh, we're sent to uh, our, our division, 85th Division, was broken up, and as a replacement, uh, part of them went to France, and our 339th Regiment went to uh, Archangel Russia. The next clip you will listen to is part of an oral history with Archer William Kammerer. This oral history was conducted by Dixie Hicks on October 15, 1976. Listen as he talks about his orders and time spent while in the military. And then uh, when the war started, I... I was located finally down at uh, Camp Kearney, San Diego. <clears throat> then uh, I guess that was when my age was I got older by a year uh, they uh, somebody wanted to make me a commissioned officer and they thought they had a rule or something, you had to be 21. And so my service record was changed, raised a year in age, <laughs> kind of informal. <laughs> and uh, 
Then I went to uh, I was kept pretty much as an instructor. You could say that. I went to machine gun schools and and then uh, I got assigned to a division that was going to go overseas and uh, the war ended about a week before we sailed back in. The next narrator I will highlight is Bessie Hoover. This interview was conducted by Frances Dye on October 11, 1987. Listen to her as she reminisces about the time she found out the war was over. I remember the day that um, we were in school and they told us, like today, that the, the armistice was signed and our teacher said, oh, don't, don't believe him, don't believe him. No, you know, it's all hearsay. The next day they heard it, and um, I must have been in the, maybe the sixth, seventh grade, and uh, there was the teacher, Louise Norton, and my one sister, and um, Louise Norton's father took us all into Los Angeles. And of course, I was a bedman. Everybody was out in, <clears throat> in the middle of the street on Broadway and shouting, <laughs> all very happy. The fourth snippet comes from an oral history with Claire Sharpless Marks. This oral history was conducted by Suzanne Wood and Ann Spencer on July 31st, 1984. Listen to her recall seeing soldiers go off to war in Santa Ana, California. Well, when I was, when the war started, the first thing that happened, of course, is the, the company L being called to war and everyone around here in the Santa Ana area uh, gathered down there in Santa Ana to see those men go off to war. Mostly their own sons were among them of course. They uh, gathered at the armory and then uh, marched down the middle of 4th Street in, uh, in formation. I think I saw a photograph of them in on Fourth Street. That was a, a big thing at that time. That was World War One. I hope you all enjoyed these clips. If anyone is interested in any of these oral histories, you can come on by to cough, and either I or one of my coworkers will help you. Along with these interviews, we have around six thousand oral histories in our collection. Go to our website at cough.fullerton.edu to research more. We are also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I hope to see you soon, and thank you for listening to Out of the Archives. And that's Outspoken, Episode 12. Our thanks to our guest, Jonathan Markley. For archivist Natalie Navarre and our producer, Carrie Markin, this is Benjamin Cothrop. Until next time. <laughs>